If you brought your Bibles and would like to, turn to 1 Corinthians 1. We have been saying that and we'll be saying that for some time. We're going to take a slow walk through this letter, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We'll have it on the screen uh, in a moment. Um, a slow walk. I, this week I was in a crowded arena in a congested hallway and I made a motion. You ever do this where you see someone that wants to yield into the pedestrian traffic? So you give them a nod and um, I gave this woman a nod and she stepped in front of me. What I didn't know that she was with an elderly couple, so she reached her hand out. They were holding hands, and I, it occurred to me with no pedestrian room that this was going to be a really slow walk down this hallway, um, and it just made me realize that um, I'll, that'll be me one day, and hopefully I'll be taking that slow walk with Susan holding my hand, and we'll be two old people with somebody behind us. But a slow walk can be a bad thing. It can be a good thing. I hope in this letter it'll be a good thing because it's quite remarkable that what they dealt with uh, a couple thousand years ago, um, we deal with today. And So this ancient wisdom we're trying to impart it to ourselves, to each other as we do this. Hey, I want to show you a picture of a couple of guys, and I want to ask you what these two guys have in common with me. So there's three men. Picture me there in the photo. So uh, what do we uh, three guys have in common? Two things we have in common. Any guesses? Um, we, no, don't guess out loud. Um, Willie Gay Jr. and A.J. Brown and Robert Green all went to Startwell High School and all are working on Super Bowl Sunday. You probably heard this, $7 million, $7 million to advertise for 30 seconds in the Super Bowl. A more a staggering number to me is not the $7 million, but this number. Psychologists tell us that 5000 is the number, the daily number of messages that we get bombarded with from advertisers. Buy this, try this, travel here. They beckon us to satisfaction, to abundance, to victory. Uh, through their messages, through their symbols. And so I'm going to read to us aloud 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 17 to 25. And when Paul uses the word message, the Greek word he's using is the Greek word logos, which is where we get our word logo. So keep that in mind as we read uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 17 to 25. And I'll read it from the screen too. For Christ did not send me to baptize. We talked about that, what that means last week because we baptized a couple of me, people and it doesn't mean what you think. But anyway, uh, listen in last week for some clarification. We, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with eloquent wisdom so that the cross of Christ will not be emptied of its effect. For the word of God, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it's the power of God to us who are being saved. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and I will set against the intelligence of the intelligent. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the debater of this age? Hasn't God made the world's wisdom foolish? For since in God's wisdom, the world did not know God through wisdom, God was pleased to save those who believe through the foolishness of what is preached. For the Jews ask for signs and the Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles, yet to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Paul said, I've got this message. It's turning the world upside down. It's changing lives. It's changed my own. He says, I'm writing to you about this message. And the word he uses is the word where we get logo, image, symbol. Uh, advertisers know this. I want to show you the most popular logos of the world. You get the Nike swoosh. This was developed by a woman and she got paid about a hundred bucks to come up with this. And uh, Phil Knight, when he saw it, he said, uh, I don't love it but it'll grow on me. This is the, one of the wings, represents one of the wings of the Greek goddess of victory. 
Uh, here is another symbol. This is Amazon and the line. This is subliminal, but the line, the arrow from A to Z represents that you can find everything online. You can find, you can buy anything you want, anything your heart desires. You can buy it on, on Amazon. The next one up is FedEx. Uh, this symbol for them, the, the person who developed the logo, the team of creatives that came up with this was trying to convey speed and accuracy uh, in the moment. What was, what's the saying um, when it absolutely positively has to get there overnight? FedEx is the way to go. Baskin Robbins, look at this. I did not realize this till a few years back. How dumb am I that there are, how many flavors in Baskin Robbins? 31, can you see the 31? Is it just, did you know this? Okay, good. I felt really dumb. So thank you for, uh, thanks for entering into my dumbness this morning. But I never noticed. By the way, real quick, I asked the early crowd, the, what's the best flavor at Baskin Robbins? Y'all know the answer? Chocolate mint, for sure. Chocolate mint, no doubt about it. I went the other night, they didn't have it. I stormed out of the store. <laughs> hoping none of you saw me, but I wouldn't have it. Here's Starbucks, a lot of... Um, Weird religious people have gotten on to Starbucks, you know, they've entered the culture wars and made it a thing when it's really not a thing. But uh, the rumors were this was some satanic mermaid or something, but it was really uh, conveys a siren. Uh, three college students came up with Starbucks uh, in 1971, and this is their uh, logo. It's one of the most famous. And then uh, Google, uh, the, the G on the right was not part of the original design. Google was probably the only major company that their logo was just the word, the name. Uh, so they threw a big G up on that. And then uh, the most recognized business insider says this is, the golden arches is the most recognized um, icon, the most recognized symbol in, a, in all the world. Uh, smart people stay up. They dream about these things to, um, and they say that a good logo, a good advertisement needs to be simple and memorable and able to tap into the deep desires of the human spirit. So question, what is really, really uh, the greatest logo of all time. The scripture is clear in this letter. It's woven throughout. Paul is haunted and captivated and compelled by this image of Jesus Christ. Two pieces of wood fastened together that were used methodically to execute slaves and criminals became the symbol of Christianity. This is our logo. Christianity's logo is the cross of Jesus Christ. Other religions, their logo is a little more inviting. The Star of David, the Crescent Moon, the Lotus Flower. They're more um, attractive, light and beauty and such. But it is this crude instrument of torture and execution that became known as the symbol of what it means to follow Jesus. A writer named uh, Fleming Rutledge said this about the world. Um, the world's religions have certain traits in common. But until the gospel of Jesus Christ burst upon the Mediterranean world, no one in the history of human imagination has conceived of such a thing as the worship of a crucified man. We see in Jesus someone who was radically different, who altered the world in a way that no one ever has. This crucified carpenter, Paul would call him, that Christ would be known as. The beauty of the cross is in the paradoxical pathway that it invites us into. Uh, it's paradoxical in the sense that Jesus uh, would talk about truths that, um, lies that we believe and truths that we miss because we follow the culture. Now in Cor Corinth, this city, 
it had surpassed, at the time of Paul's writing, some AD 55, it had surpassed Athens as the Mecca of culture and sophistication. It was culturally, ethnically, and religiously diverse. It was a part of the Roman rebuild, the Pax Romana. If you study that in history, the Ro- Roman Empire had rebuilt this city and rebuilt it better than ever. And so it was a leader. And people in Corinth were aspiring. It was a, we would say it was a startup, okay, without all the technology and stuff, but it was a startup. And so young, rich, diverse people were there. And they were what we would say today, they were trying to kill it. They were killing it. They were competing against each other. They were trying to get to the top. And here's Paul writing and talking about a crucified carpenter, a crucified savior, a crucified Christ. So there's paradoxical truth in that if you want to be first, you need to be last. If you want to be great, you need to be a servant. It's better to give than it is uh, to receive. If you uh, want to seek to save your life, you must lose it. If you seek to lose your life, you will find it. These are paradoxical truths that we find only in Jesus Christ, the most compelling person in human history. It was, it's a pathway to paradox because on one hand, the government used the cross as an instrument of torture and execution. But God uses the cross as a symbol of love and sacrifice and life and forgiveness, which is in the hope of every human heart. Talking about simple, memorable, and able to tap into our deepest desires, that's what the cross does for us. Now, other religious symbols, I said, are more inviting. That's easy to argue, easy to have that uh, supposition. But uh, nothing has surpassed the cross. It's inspired more architecture. It's been It's adorned more jewelry, Uh, whether you watch the Grammys last Sunday or the Super Bowl tonight. It's on more celebrities and more people, more divergent people than any symbol ever. So what is it about this this cross? Well, if you still have your open Bibles, in verse 22, you'll recall that, you can see it in front of you, that Paul said this, that Jews, um, they're asking for a sign. And Greeks or Gentiles are seeking wisdom. This could be, um, let's think about this as three different logos, okay? Logo number one, think Israel, and think about the Jewish people seeking a sign. I don't have it on the screen, but Matthew 12, 38 says this, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law came to Jesus and they said, hey, will you teach or show us a sign? Now, why did they want a sign? Matthew 12, 38 tells us that, but there's many places in the gospel. That's just the one I selected to quote. But many times someone would come to Jesus and say, a Jewish person, a scribe, a Pharisee, a teacher of the law, and they would say, hey, teacher. They had a sense that Jesus was more elevated than them. He was, Matthew 7, 28 and following, was preaching as one who had authority, one who was different, very unique uh, in his teaching. So they're saying, hey, would you show us a sign? Now, why did they want a sign? What were they really asking for? They were wanting to know if he was powerful. They were wanting to know if he really had authority. They were wanting to know if he was the Messiah. They were wanting to know if he was the one who would come and save the oppressed Israelites uh, from their Roman oppressors. They wanted someone to save them by military might. And they're like, do you, do you have a sign? Will you show us a sign? Nothing has changed in the human heart. From us fighting and us thinking, and listen real quick, uh, If you're a follower of Jesus, uh, you should be political. Being apolitical is not the answer. Engaging in politics and going into the public arena is very, very important, being thoughtful about that. But Jesus taught in John 18 that his kingdom is not of this world. And it's so like us. Nothing has changed from the city of Corinth to our day where we think political power is where it's at. We think that we can impose our will on other people, and that will be the answer. That'll be utopia. That'll be what we seek. And the Jewish people were the same then as, as we are now. Power, influence, charisma, that's the path 
to killing it. That's the path to getting ahead. That's the path to making it in Corinth back then in our day. If we were to look at our day, uh, I think the, the icon or the symbol of this could be uh, the rock. You guys know uh, the rock. Um, my man's from Germany here. Do y'all, y'all have the rock over in Germany? You've heard of the rock? In yeah. Several years ago in, uh, at 1510 Delgado Avenue in Coral Gables, Florida, at the home of Stephen Arlene DeBar Laban, Campus Crusade, the ministry I work with called Crew Now, partner with Athletes in Action, I got to know this guy named Dwayne Johnson. And Dwayne was telling me in a group that night that uh, he was going to be beat out that year for a starting job as defensive tackle. And I didn't know it at the time, but it would be a guy named Warren Sapp who actually beat him out for the defensive tackle job. But uh, Dwayne and I were talking. I remember him saying, you know, hey, you can, you can think about me. You can pray for me uh, because I want to be a wrestler. I want to follow in the footsteps of my grandfather and such. I want to be a, a wrestler, maybe a movie star. And I remember, like, I believed Dwayne Johnson. I was like, man, if you don't make it to the NFL, you are going to be a wrestler. This guy, he had that charisma. I mean, you could tell he was a man of influence. He was well-spoken, and he had ambition. And I, I, I wasn't one to argue with Dwayne Johnson. I'm sure Dwayne The Rock is somewhere today uh, talking about me. Uh, somewhere out there uh, sharing some illustration about Robert Greene in 1992. Uh, but Dwayne Johnson has gone on to be the rock. And in some ways, he's um, you know, a, a, a wrestler, a figure. and so it's, it, He's a product of, yes, talent and charisma and influence and power, but also of the marketing machine, the modern marketing machine. And for us, it's so easy to think this is a powerful person, but that body that's all chiseled up, uh, those hundreds and millions of dollars, I think he's getting close to a billion dollars of net worth. That, that body that's all tatted up, it'll start to fade. It'll start to wear out like yours will and like mine will. The outward man is wasting away. That's 2 Corinthians 4. The outward man is wasting away, but the inward man is being renewed day by day. But we think power is this. And Deuteronomy, the song of Moses, Deuteronomy 32, 4, Moses tells us in song who the rock is. He is the rock. His work is perfect. For all his ways are justice, a God of truth and without iniquity. That is our God and it's not reserved for any any man not reserved for any of us but we tend to think that that the way the path to the top is power and influence and charisma Uh, the Jews were asking for a sign they wanted to hitch themselves to power but it says the the Greeks the Gentiles uh, they were seeking wisdom take a look uh, open Bible or uh, on the screen uh, in the second chapter of first Corinthians Verses 1 through 5, here's what he would go on to say. When I came to you, brothers and sisters, announcing the mystery of God to you, I did not come with brilliance of speech or wisdom. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and much trembling. My speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of wisdom, but with the demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not be based on human wisdom, but on God's power. All right, here's what Paul is not saying. He's not saying, I use poor logic and bad grammar. Trust me, much to the contrary. But what he's saying is that ultimately the hope is not on that. What he really is saying is that I'm identifying with the weak and the lowly. That I'm living as a tent maker and I'm among the slaves and I'm not going to preach this gospel on the back of the rich and the powerful to make anyone think that it's about that. So again, poor logic, bad grammar, That's not what Paul is saying. It seems like he is, but trust me, he's not. Paul was a brilliant man. You could easily argue one of the greatest minds of all time. But he's saying that when the, and he's writing this, I I shared this last week, given culture and context. Last week I mentioned this, but in Corinth, uh, they um, have a 14,000 seat theater. 
And the theater was not for Super Bowl things like we would think of. It was primarily for sages to take the stage or they're called sophists, people of wisdom. They would take the stage and they would speak uh, with eloquence and intelligence and they would captivate people. And Paul is saying that this gospel message is not built on that. You don't have to be the smartest person in the room. If the rock was a, a poster, an icon for power, then maybe Albert Einstein could be um, the icon, the symbol for intelligence. You don't have to be the smartest person in the room. If you're a leader of a team, I encourage you to not be the smartest person in the room. Hire people, get volunteers, get people around you who are smarter than you. You'll go further, you'll go faster if that's not the case. But he's, what is he saying? I'm identifying with the lowly. He's saying it's not about all that you know. And for some of you, you're really smart. And I'd like to be like you. You're really educated. You have a PhD, which means piled high and deep. You've got a lot of intelligence and you may overthink things. And I'm finding in my pastoral counseling that people that are overthinking are anxious people. People that want all the answers and want to be able to reason everything and, and get easy answers for everything. But it's not going to come so easily. Don't put your trust in that. But a third way beyond power, beyond wisdom, is Christ crucified. This is what we call today an oxymoron. I googled in preparation for this, you know some oxymorons. It's two words that people use back to back that contradict each other. Jumbo, shrimp, civil war, small crowd, hell's angels, virtue reality, airline food, things like this, back to back. But here's what he's saying. You see Jesus, you see Christ was not his name. Christ was a title. Christ meant, Jesus was his name. Christ is a title. It's a, it's, it means Messiah or anointed one. The, the Bible tells us in biblical times in the land of Israel, leading into the New Testament, there were prophets and the priests and there were kings. And in the New Testament, uh, we mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, there are apostles and evangelists. There are prophets. There are pastors and teachers. Uh, these titles are important, but only one Messiah, only one anointed one. And Paul is writing this to the Corinthian people who had surpassed Athens with their wisdom and their power and their culture. And he's saying to them, Christ is crucified. And that didn't make sense because you could, you could have a Christ, the Messiah or anointed one, or you could have a crucifixion. But you couldn't have a Christ who was crucified. This message for anyone trying to follow Jesus and fit into the world, can I just say you, tell you today, can I just say to you, it doesn't fit into the world. This culture is going to try to squeeze you into the mold, but following Jesus is really different. And it's simple devotion, simple devotion, but it's different than the world in which we're living. And so Paul is writing and saying, and listen, to the culture that he's writing, they understood executions. To us, we don't so much. Every so often, we'll see a news story where so-and-so is going to be executed in Mississippi. We debate and argue the merits of capital punishment. What does the scripture say? What about an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth from the old? Or what about when Jesus said this, turn the other cheek? And we debate this, and we have different opinions and convictions, and it always comes up, is it a deterrent? I, I would only want capital punishment. I'm not, I'm not saying this. I'm just saying some of y'all say this, that I would only want capital punishment to be the law of the land if it acts as a deterrent. But let me talk to you about a deterrent in the Roman Empire. You see, they understood execution because it was before them always. They understood how to execute swiftly, beheading someone with the sword. They understood how to execute privately. Socrates 
You may know when he knew that he was condemned to die, he, in a small circle of friends, took the hemlock, took the poison so that he wouldn't have to endure something else that he didn't want to do. They understood execution, a crucifixion. A crucifixion was time-consuming and costly for the government. Governments don't like to mess with things that are time-consuming and costly. Nobody does, especially the government. Look at our roads around here. The government didn't want to take it. was costly. A cross had to be constructed. Four soldiers had to be present. A centurion had to be on the scene. So when they executed, why? If it was costly and time-consuming and all these things had to be in place, why then would they execute? Two reasons, history tells us. Number one, a crucifixion, it was painful. A crucifixion was for those who were slaves or those who were hardened criminals. And it was painful. It would take hours, if not days, to die. The victims were stripped naked, they were exposed, they were mocked, and they were shamed. A placard, they had to hold a placard of their crime. When you watch the Super Bowl tonight, one of somebody on your team will be called for holding. And it'll say, holding number 65. And if that's your team, you're like, and I always feel bad for number 65 because like national TV and, uh, you know, we see his crime and they show a picture of him and, and all that. And we talk about how he needs to be traded and he just feels so naked out there. But this is way beyond a holding call in a football game. This is the sin, you, this is who you are, and this is what's condemned you to die. And so you would carry a placard of your crime, and you'd be paraded. Oftentimes, they took the longest route. History writers, Josephus and others, tell us they would take the longest route through the uh, most populated parts of the town or village to maximize public attention. And Paul is saying that this was Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, that he died this death. Take a look at these three references in Scripture. Galatians 2.20, Luke 9.23, and Hebrews 12.2. We often say that Christ died on the cross so that we don't have to. But Paul saw it a little bit differently. He said in Galatians 2, I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, it's not I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me who loved me and gave himself for me. The life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. There is an identification in the crucifixion. This paradoxical pathway you're invited into. You're invited as a follower of Jesus or you're invited to follow Jesus and some of you have not made this decision ever. But to follow Jesus means we identify with him. We all, one preacher said, we all want the resurrection but almost nobody wants the crucifixion. And Jesus would say in Luke 9, if you want to be my disciple, and by the way, folks, that's why we're here. We're here to make disciples. If you want to be my disciple, Jesus said, then take up your cross, deny yourself, and take up your cross daily and follow me. He wants us to identify with him. What would that look like? What would it look like if you identify? What would it look like to take up the cross? It could mean, like some people you see at the Super Bowl or last week at the Grammys, it could mean that you wear a cross. It could mean that you have it on your body in form of a tattoo or jewelry. You could take a cross with you. Not a bad idea to take a cross with you. If you did, what would it look like at work to work under the cross, to be crucified with Christ? It would probably mean that you cheer for your coworkers. It would probably mean, as I mentioned earlier, that you don't have to be the smartest person in the room, that you could listen more. It probably would mean that you would look around and you would have eyes that see, spiritual eyes in tune with the Spirit, that you would look and see who needs to be encouraged. What would it look like to live under the cross at school? If you were a student, I would say this. The first thing it probably would mean to live under the cross is no cheating, but also no worrying. 
and also no comparing. That you would do your work and you would study your text, your pursuit, and you would do it and you would take the test and then you would let go and give the results to God. That's what it would look like to study under the cross. What would it look like to drive under the cross? Not too long ago, I was driving my white Ford F-150 and uh, someone uh, was animated next to me and they were honking and, and saluting me. And when we got to the light, they, they were getting out and uh, it, it was someone else, I promise y'all, I'm telling the truth, it was someone else in a white pickup truck that cut this guy off. But I think he thought it was me and I'm like, oh no, uh, I'm a pastor, this could end badly. But he got out, he was approaching me in his anger and I rolled down my window and I pointed to his uh, car and there was a cross hanging from his mirror. I'm like, hey, that's a cross you got. And I'm, I'm a pastor and like we're brothers probably in Christ. And um, what would it look like to, uh, to live under Christ? You know, if you have a cross, if you have a cross, then you're identified with that. So maybe you should be careful. Some of you have a Fondren Church bumper sticker on your vehicle. Please be careful how you drive around this town. But to live under the cross, is to, it affects work. It affects study. It affects driving. It could affect your home life, your sibling or your spouse or child or roommate, the people that you live with. You could live in a more cross, a Christ-like way under the cross. Your phone, your screen, your tablet, your devices that you look at, what would it look like for you to live under the cross? to be identified with the crucified Christ. These are the things that bring us life, that bring abundance and victory and satisfaction. So maybe you're being instructed for the first time, I doubt it, but today on Super Bowl Sunday, maybe you're being reminded that it's the paradoxical truth of Jesus and the message of the cross that will bring us life. And Paul is writing to the Corinthians, he knew what he was doing when he said Christ crucified. He knew, he said it here in verse 23, that it's a, it's a stumbling block to the Jews. And it's the way of foolishness to the Gentiles or to the Greeks. He knew that because he preached Christ crucified. But I think he suspected that in a couple thousand years and beyond, thousands and thousands of years later, that it would be the empire of Rome that would crumble. Caesar and Augustus and Corinth and people in places like that. Rome itself would crumble. But this crucified carpenter that his impact and his kingdom would remain and it would grow. And guess what? Despite the critics and detractors and naysayers, the, the, the movement that Jesus started is growing. It's not as white as it used to be, can I just say that? But it is growing around the globe and that is a good thing. And what Jesus, what Paul was saying about Jesus, man, there, it's a matchless life and there's been nothing like it. In Hebrews 12, it says that we are living with such a great cloud of witnesses. We're living with such a great crowd of witnesses. Let us lay aside the sin that so easily entangles us. Let us run the race with perseverance that's before us. And here we go. Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, for the joy set before him endured the cross. He endured the cross with joy because of the life that he would set for us. First Peter 2, as Lauren and the team make their way up, I want to close with this. First Peter 2. Peter would say this, a companion of Paul's, would later say about Jesus, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. By the way, can, can I say living under the cross might mean that for you? You don't have to retaliate. You don't have to seek revenge. You don't have to answer everything. You don't have to go after everybody. You don't have to enter into every argument you're invited into. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him 
who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying, this is Isaiah 53. Sometimes you can catch the New Testament writers plagiarizing. For you have, were straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So when I think about the crucified life, when I invite you to not just be a churchgoer or some American Christian, when I invite you to be a disciple of Jesus, to deny yourself and to take up your cross and to follow him, I want to invite you to see Jesus not as just a savior. And again, some of you haven't made that decision and you should, you need to. But I want to invite you to see Jesus as a shepherd and an overseer of your soul. Philip Keller wrote a book called A Shepherd Looks at the 23rd Psalm. And he describes sheep, as uh, you've heard me quote him before, he describes sheep as dumb and dirty and defenseless. So they need, what do they need? They need someone to show them the way. They need someone to help them in their mess. They need someone to provide protection for them. And faithful followers of Jesus give us this story that you and I, we find this in the cross. All the deepest questions, you find them at the cross. No, no search on Google is going to give you all the wisdom that you need. No seeking on Amazon, buying on Amazon is is gonna fill your emptiness. No hunger under the logo of the golden arches is gonna give you what you need to sustain you. But we have a savior in Jesus, a crucified Christ who desires to invite you into his safety, a life given out, a dangerous life, a daring life, but into his ultimate protection. We can entrust him to judge rightly and to be the shepherd and overseer our soul. So as you stand, I want to ask you about your relationship with the cross. I want to ask you if you would to stand as you as you think about your life. Have you have you entered into this relationship and do you know the crucified Christ as your savior, as your overseer, as your shepherd? When you feel dumb and dirty and defenseless, do you go to him? Or do you cover up? Are you seeking other strategies of self-sufficiency? Let me say this about Corinth, and because you and I have a Corinth, and we live in a Corinth. Corinth was about people aspiring, about people saying, man, I'm killing it. Look at me, I'm killing it. And so let me say this, your Corinth, even if you're killing it and you're doing really well in your Corinth, ultimately, Corinth is going to let you down. Your power and influence and charisma, your intelligence, what you're striving for, it's ultimately going to let you down. And it can't save you from the fear of death and life and the unknown. But if this crucified carpenter can speak into the deepest needs of your soul. Let me pray for you. Father, thanks for this morning. And for a message that's so different from then, so different from now. It's paradoxical, but I pray that it's compelling for us. If someone's at the end of themselves today in their Corinth, they're aspiring in their ambition, if killing it is killing them, then I thank you that we have a Savior who will be a shepherd and an overseer. Lord, for those of us who are wanting to speed up the process of your work in us, who want the resurrection without the crucifixion, I pray that you slow us 
and mature us and refine us through where we're waiting and where it's hurting and where our need is. God, I thank you that we can be a part today. We can be a local church body gathered and be a part of a global movement around the world because of the cross of Christ. Lord, would you show us different ways that's of sacrifice and love and forgiveness of non-retaliation of humble service of self-denial that won't be lauded probably on any Super Bowl commercials now but Lord it's the message that's the deepest need of our hearts in Jesus we pray Amen Church we're open the altar as we did the first service and it was an honor to pray with people to see people pray um, would you come today if there's a decision if we can uh, We'll be fanned out here. We want to pray for you, pray over you. A decision you need to make, spiritual direction, anything like that, a need in your life or praise that you have. You can come and you can kneel. I want everybody to sing, but you come today. Take a few steps forward today. I really believe God will honor that if he's stirring something up in you. Um, and it'll be a wonderful testimony to anybody in the room today. You come today if we can pray for you.